Would you open God's precious holy word to Psalm 56? The basis of this psalm is found in the event, events that are told in 1 Samuel 21. David was alone running from Saul. He had no, he was disarmed. He had no arms to fight with. No, well, you know what I mean, sword or spear. He, um, and he was hungry. He stopped at Nob, where the, the tabernacle outfittings had been set up. Achimelech, the priest, was there. David says, I'm on an urgent matter for, from, the, for, from the king. He kind of embellished the, well, he didn't tell the truth. And he said, uh, I'm alone now, but I'm to meet up with some men for this urgent matter, and we need something to eat. Well, you know, the, the bread that was reserved for the priests was getting old, and it was time for them to make He said, well, I'm just going to give you this bread. But make sure that none of the men have been with any women in a certain length of time. And then he said, well, I also need a spear or a sword or something. He said, well, we got that sword that you took off of Goliath. It's in here. It's wrapped up in a cloth. David said, that's a good sword. I'll take it. So he took that sword and took that bread and took off. And he went to Gath in the, Philist in the land of the Philistines. The counselors to the king noted, noticed this guy, and they said to the king, I'm pretty sure that's David. You remember David, the fighter from Israel, the guy who killed Goliath. Of course, one telltale <laughs> giveaway might have been the sword he was carrying. I don't know. But um, David saw that they were looking at him. And he began to fear for his life. And so he pretended to be insane. And he kind of foamed at the mouth and scratched the walls with his fingernails. And the king said, look at that guy. He's crazy. Do I need to add any more madmen to the ones I already have? That's kind of what he said. But apparently they kept hounding David, watching him and conspiring to take him down. They didn't trust him. They just knew it was David. It was a very dangerous situation. Now, David is a long way from Israel. He's a long way from uh, the tabernacle, the outfittings of the tabernacle from the altar. He's in a land that is not his land. He's in the midst of people alone that are not his people. He's living by his wits and he has nothing else to do but to try to avoid people and to try to, whenever they paid attention to him to make them think he was insane. He was a madman. Against all of that, God gives David this prayer, this song. 
And it's a song about fear and faith. You'll be on one side or the other of this when a dire situation is faced, when any kind of situation is faced. Are you going to shrivel and grovel and be afraid or are you just going to cast it on the Lord? Have faith. This is an account of David's response to the mess he was in in Gath of the Philistines. First we see, remember he, he starts in, in all of these, he starts out afraid and then he begins to say, well, you know, he, he becomes resolute after he's afraid, then through his prayer, he's strengthened with his thoughts of God. And then he, he becomes a worshiper by the end of the, this follows pretty much the same pattern as we've seen. For the conductor on Yonat Elim Rechim. Now that's in the, it's left in the first translations of the Hebrew, that is the first translation, not a second or a third. It's left untranslated generally because it's an ancient Hebrew set of words that are difficult for scholars to translate. Through the millennia, there are two possibilities. There have been, it has been determined through research and cross studies, there are two possibilities here. One is, this is set upon a silent dove in distant lands. In recent times, most agree that this is the translation. And Considering the backdrop to the prayer, to the psalm, it speaks of David, who is alone in a distant land, and he has no power, so he's like a dove in the midst of all of these Philistines who are very aggressive and warlike. They conspire against him and they keep watching on, over him. They don't trust him. And he has nothing to say to those people. That is, he's withdrawn and all alone. This is how then the prayer is described. Here's a guy. He's in a mess. He's alone. He's surrounded by people that hate him, cons conspiring against him. In David's case... They want to discover him completely so they can get the king's approval to kill him. Now, that can describe people in various settings in life. So this is how the setting is given. And it's of David Amichama, a contemplative uh, psalm. When the Philistines seized him in Gath. And so here is his appeal. Be gracious to me, Elohim. The only thing that's going to work for us is grace. We can't merit it. Because men yearn to swallow me all day long. 
And you could probably put, it's probably a better translation to say the enemy warrior oppresses me. He wants to kill me. Those who eye me, now his reference here is to those who are always following him around and watching him. Those who eye me have yearned to swallow me all day long. For many fight against me, marom. Now that can be translated one of two ways. Most people think that it means most high, referencing God. So his prayer would say that he's addressing this part to most high. Another possible translation of the word is to make it an adverb and to say that they fight proudly against me. Either way, it has a deep meaning. His only appeal is to the most high. The word, see, most high generally is El Elyon, most high God. But this is rare use of the word if it appeals to the deity, to God. And it speaks of the one who is high and above all others. There is none higher than him. So he has supreme strength. He's superior over all. Most likely, he is appealing most high in the sense that he's alone. He's a dove. (laughs) He's kind of pitiful. Surrounded by mighty Philistine warriors who have weapons of iron, very aggressive and warlike in their attitudes, haters of David, who early in his life had killed their champion, Goliath. And it says in that uh, 1 Samuel 21, regarding the background of this psalm, when speaking to the king of the Philistines, was it Abiathar? Anyway, the king, his counselors say, we know this is David. He's the one whom the people sing, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his tens of thousands. So they are very aggressive and he's all alone. So he's the, the likely translation and early rabbinical scholars agree that he is appealing to the one who is higher than everybody else. He, he doesn't say most high God. He's crying out to the highest of the highs and the God who is there. There is no God. There is no power in the world higher or greater than Maroon. High one. Most high. David then asserts his relationship with the true and living God who has no equal anywhere. Now it moves from there to David's confession of confidence. He was kind of shaky there at the beginning. By the way, my from the Hebrew text again, I'm probably one verse ahead of you as you go along because of the introduction is divided into two verses instead of one in the Hebrew text. Okay. He moves, now that he's addressing Maroon, now that he's calling out for 
God to be gracious and he casts himself upon the mercy of God. Now, as is the pattern of his other prayers that we've studied, he begins to gain confidence. So he begins in his prayer, continuing his prayer, he confesses his confidence. The day I fear, I will have faith in you. That's a great, that's a great line. The day I am afraid, I will cast my hope upon you. He didn't have anywhere else to go. Remember him? He's the little dove out there who's mute, the mute dove in the farthest distant land. Calling out to Maroon. He's afraid. And he says, I'll tell you what. Now you have, all right, faith of it. You have two possibilities here. You can, you can shrivel into a fetal position and suck your thumb and just whimper and die. Or you can stand up and say, I know God and God will help me. My faith is in God. Well, obviously, David chooses the latter. He's not just going to shrivel up and collapse. He's not that kind of man. He's a man of faith. So he says, you know, the day that I'm afraid, I will cast my hope upon you. The day I fear, I will hope to you. When fear comes upon me, faith comes more greatly upon me. To play upon what is said in the New Testament about sin and grace, where fear abounds in my life, faith does much more abound. That's pretty much what he's saying here. In God, Elohim. In God, I will praise his word. Praise his word. Now, David has promises. We have promises that God has made to us. God is a word keeper. He praises the word of God. In God, I will praise his word. In God, in Elohim, I trusted I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? If my faith is in God and it has displaced my fear, what can flesh do to me? I mean, you can't think of a situation where a person is in more dire straits than was David in this situation. Hopeless, helpless. No way to fight against their thoughts, to hide from their conspiracies and prying eyes, watching him all the time, hounding him. Back up earlier, we saw a, a phrase that talked about how they oppressed him. They hounded him. So what you understand is that they weren't just walking around looking at him. They were spitting on him. They were making fun of him. They were saying harsh things to him. They were trying to intimidate him and all these things. David did not express fear in that. He expressed faith in God, his trust, his praise, 
in the Word of God. And so God, now remember, God is inspiring his prayer. This is the inspired Word of God. God's putting this prayer in his heart, in his life. So God gives this to him and he says, what can flesh do to me if I am utterly committed by faith to God and his word? Now he gets bolder in his prayer and makes a complaint against those enemies of his who are so evil. All day long, my words grieve me or they're twisted against me. What this means is, Anything that was a part of David's life that was historical or whatever, and the Philistines knew it, they would twist it. They would uh, perhaps bring Saul into it, or the fact that he had married Saul's daughter as a gift for defeating Goliath. All kinds of anything that had ever passed through the life of David was twisted and made to look ugly and brought into a situation that his words and his actions, his life, could be used in a case against him to intimidate him and make him afraid. All day long, they twist the events of my life, my words, and all of their thoughts about me are for evil. They lodge, they hide, they watch my steps, when they hope for my life. For iniquity, they expect rescue. They think their evil is going to be delivered. Bring down nations, and the word really means peoples. It's, it's not just the word for nations, it's a bigger word. I maybe should have said peoples. Bring down peoples with anger or wrath, Elohim. This part of his prayer not only would have included Gentiles, but would have included Israelites who also have or are conspiring against him to kill him, which includes, of course, Saul and uh, Saul's army and Saul's counselors. Bring down peoples with anger, Elohim. Let, the world, let it be revealed to the world that I'm your servant and that you are God. You are my God, Elohim. Following the pattern of his prayer, his confidence grows in the power of God. He's moved from that fear at the very beginning of his prayer and his confidence is growing. Let's look at it. He's reflecting on Yahweh. You counted my wanderings. Now the word here for wanderings is a reference to fugitive wanderings. David's a fugitive running from Saul. Every hour of every day, Elohim, God has made an account of David's wanderings. You're keeping a book on this. You know every one of them. Place my tears in your flask, in your bottle. 
Is it not in your book? That's another accounting term. David, for a great space of his life, as a fugitive hated by his own people in many ways, could do nothing but weep. Tear after tear, God was counting them. God was somehow collecting them in a great spiritual bottle and keeping a book, keeping a count of all of the tears that David had shed. So he's keeping a book on his wanderings as a fugitive, placing his tears in Elohim's Elohim flask and keeping an account, a careful account of his tears. Does God do that with all of us? I would think so. How many kinds of books are there that will be opened in that day? When we are told by the revelator and the books were opened and the book was opened, which is the book of life. Well, we know at least in David's life, two particular books. One book was the book of his fugitive wanderings. And every day that he was pursued by those who hated him was a day that God would add to the register of wrath against those who chased him like he was a fugitive. And every day that he was being chased and he wept and he shed his tears when he should have joyfully been the king of Israel, God kept a record of it. And in keeping that record of it, keeping that account of it, every tear that fell was another drop placed upon the account of God's wrath that he would bring against the enemies of David. It includes these Philistines. Then my enemies will retreat on the day that I call or I cry out in prayer. I know this because Elohim is for me. God has proven himself too many times to David to forsake him now. When I cry out, I know that my enemies will fall back. They will retreat because I know Elohim is for me. He's on my side. In Elohim, I will praise his word. And now the covenant name, the personal name, the name that can only exist between the person of the covenant and the giver of the covenant, Yahweh. In Yahweh, I will praise his word. He has a covenant with me. He's the covenant God. And in him and in that, I will trust, I'll praise his word in Yahweh. I will praise his word. In Elohim God, in, El in El Elohim, I trusted. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
So now he closes in his personal commitment in this high point of worship. I think I misspelled commitment. Oh well. Upon me, Elohim. No, I didn't. It bothers me when I see it, obviously. Upon me, Elohim, are your vows. Okay. I have a responsibility that's laid on me. This word speaks of a votive offering. You remember in Leviticus when we were studying the offerings, some of the offerings were votive. They were voluntary offerings. They weren't required, but the worshiper was so moved in a certain way that God had blessed him, he vowed to make this offering, this sacrifice. Now, to an agrarian society, that was a difficult and expensive thing to do. Didn't have to. But in the course of this scenario, David has made promises. He's made vows. They're incumbent upon me, Elohim. These vows, these, this pledge to make votive offerings. I will pay thanksgiving offerings to you. Now, he's still in a mess, but he's already anticipating his deliverance. So he says, I'm going to do this because you're going to deliver me. I will pay thanksgiving offerings to you. For you saved my soul from death, rescued me, same word. Even my feet from stumbling to walk before Elohim in the light of the living. God gives him this prayer and gives him this conclusion at the end of his prayer. And David prays it. And the conclusion is this. You won't die there in Gath. They're watching you and they want you to stumble, but I'm not going to let you stumble. They want to kill you, but I'm going to rescue you from them. And I will see to it that you are preserved so that you will continue and walk before me in the light of the living, not in the darkness of death. Well, we'll stop there and we'll pray and be through for tonight. Father God in heaven, Lord, we must always ask the question in our lives and we know it. Is it fear or is it faith that drives us? Lord, strengthen us, bless us so that our faith will always overcome our fear. In Jesus' name. Amen.